and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we're going to head out over to Grandma's house to go escape our, like, super fucked up life. But in the meantime, I guess we'll get thrown into the women's prison after almost killing a guy and also try to get used to our short haircut we have because that guy cut our ponytail off. But anyway, uh, regardless of all that, though, uh, today we're going to be covering a little movie from 1996 called Freeway. Now, this film, uh, I must say, I, I I didn't grow up watching it or anything, Um you know, I was watching things that were a little questionable maybe uh, when I was young, but n- not this one. I became familiar with it after being a, a fan of Reese Witherspoon from like Legally Blonde or other movies that she was in. And uh, seeing that it was an early role for her. And, and I was like, once I found out what it was, I was like, oh, okay, so it's like a weird retelling it's kind of like a fucked up retelling of Little Red Riding Hood, and it has her in it, and it has Kiefer Sutherland, I guess, in it, and I was, I was like, okay, whatever. And so then, I believe when it came to this, I think it either... When did I first watch it, though? I first watched it back in 2022, uh, in July, but I'm trying to remember. It might have been on Shutter by that point, or maybe Shutter, it came on Shutter after that or something, but I, I remember... Actually, no, it was on Prime. That's when I watched it. Um, then it came on Shutter after that, but like, um, I just watched it on Shutter uh, in preparation for this podcast, but I... Uh, but yeah, I saw it and I was like, well, I guess if it's on here and then finding out that it's like streaming a bunch of places for free, I was like, oh, okay, great. But I watched it on Prime, so I didn't have to watch ads. And you know, honestly, like, I really enjoy this movie. I mean, it is kind of a, it is a movie that is kind of that quintessential, like, cult movie, uh, you know, and, and like, it didn't perform very well when it came out, to, to surprise, surprise. But like, you know, I, I think also, like, this film is so unique to me really I, I don't know of another movie that is like it really I think all the performances in it are really good and you know I think it's it's just a unique story you know and 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 I, I think it can speak to a lot of different people in a way so I uh, I don't know I really like it and getting to listen to other people's like uh, like episodes on it um, if they've covered it on podcasts like has been really interesting as well you know just hearing them and what their thoughts are but I uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad I've seen this movie, and uh, I, I'm glad to be covering it today. Uh, so, without further ado, though, so we're going to get into a little bit about just, like, how did this movie come to be, just some history behind it, as much as I could find, um, and then we'll move into, like, a little bit of a plot summary breakdown of the characters uh, and that as well. But without further ado, let's move on to those figures. So Freeway was released August 23rd of 1996, so right around the time you're hearing this is when it was released, and then we're looking at a runtime of about 102 minutes, which is about hour 40, hour 42. Um, there is a like censored version of this, and also like an uncensored version that only really takes out like two different things, maybe. This was distributed by Republic Pictures, and we're looking at about an estimated $3 million budget, uh, which is a very low budget, uh, technically, even at these times. Uh, so the opening weekend rank and gross of this movie was uh, number 27 with $14,945. And then the overall um, domestic and worldwide gross, because this was not released internationally, but it was about $295,493. So needless to say, it was kind of an abject financial failure. 
Um, however, critically, it actually did pretty decent. Um, we're looking at a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes with about 42 reviews from critics. And then about the same, actually, for audience score. I'm sure thousands and thousands of reviews of it um, from fans of it and, you know, people who watched it. And then a 3.5 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Now, when we look at the production crew of this movie, we have uh, the writer and director, Matthew Bright, who we'll get to him in a little bit, but he is responsible for directing Freeway 2, Confessions of a Trick Baby, with Natasha Lyonne in it. Um, So he did that. He also directed, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but I have actually seen this movie. It is a movie called Ted Bundy from the early 2000s, and And this is actually a part of a series. So they did Ted Bundy. They also did Dahmer with Jeremy Renner and then Gacy. And it was like these three movies that uh, kind of just chronicled the crimes of these men uh, pretty much. And I've seen Ted Bundy before. I don't remember who played Bundy. I'm not looking it up. But it was the guy who played Ted Bundy. Um, And it was directed by Matthew Bright. And I remember it being kind of fucked up, honestly. So it it, it tracks that Matthew Bright did this because his style of directing is, uh, I'm sure, a a very specific one. But yes, that was so weird that I found out that, you know, he did this because I was like, oh, okay. Um, And yeah, I I don't know about checking out those movies. If if you're a true crime person, you want to. That's up to you. Um, I just feel kind of. Uh, it feels weird watching those movies. I don't really like true crime like that, but anyway. And then also he directed his last directorial effort, uh, and I think he also wrote it too, was Tiptoes. Um, And Tiptoes, if you don't know, I'm not going to go too into it, but it has Gary Oldman in it and a couple other people as well. Uh, And it's about a regular-sized person whose family is all made up of dwarves. And it's like a whole... Matthew McConaughey's in it. And like, yeah. (laughs) Ethan Klein from H3H3 seems to be obsessed with that movie. He's just like so fascinated by the fact that it became a thing. It was literally released. And it was literally um, Matthew Bright's last um, directorial effort he did. Funny enough, I mean, Matthew Bright reminds me a little bit of, like, a, um, not, maybe it's just, like, because he takes on, like, unflinching sort of material, but he does remind me of, like, a little bit of, like, a Todd Salons in a way. The Todd Salons is a lot more, like, um, cynical, and I think Matthew Bright can be a little bit, but, like, uh, yeah, no, they they remind me a little bit of each other, because even something like Freeway, something like Freeway and Welcome to the Dollhouse, you know what I mean, or, or Happiness or whatever, like, I think those movies are, like, they all kind of, like, fit into a similar kind of vein for me um just because they're kind of unflinching they're you know they're kind of just like i guess cynical you could say yeah they're a little cynical but yeah i uh i think that's very interesting with matthew bright uh but yeah and then he also wrote this he wrote forbidden zone back in the 80s which had susan tyrell in it uh from butcher baker nightmare maker and also cry baby uh but she was in that movie i it's on Tubi. I haven't watched it before, but maybe I will at one point. And then um, Modern Vampires, he also did as well. And it was another thing he wrote um, in addition to this movie. And then the composer is uh, one Danny Elfman, who I thought was it was really cool. I found that out. And um, I just have in my notes, like, he's Danny fucking Elfman. I mean, he's done... 
a lot of Tim Burton films, and he's just like, you know, he's done quite a bit in his composing career. Um, and he's very well known, obviously. And he did do this movie for the for the composition of it. Cinematographer is John Thomas. Um, he actually did both of the Sex in the City movies. Uh, he like was the DP on those, which is kind of cool. Um, but that's the one thing I found about him. And then the editor is Maisie Hoy, and so she, he or she, I guess it's a she. She edited like the uh, movie Major League, which is about baseball, and then also the Joy Luck Club. She was a part of editing that as well. So that's a little bit of the crew that we have here. And also Oliver Stone was one of the producers on this movie as well. And we can get into him a little bit later. And then for actors of this movie, uh, of course, we have our our main Vanessa Lutz, played by Reese Witherspoon. In my notes, I just say she's Reese Fatherking Witherspoon. I mean, duh, like she's been in Man on the Moon. She's been in Cruel Intentions, Election, Legally Blonde, everything. She, I think, has an Oscar, if I'm not mistaken. So like... Fuck it, she's Reese Witherspoon, but this is like an early thing for her. She was about 20 when she did this, and um, it's really interesting. I mean, I think she takes every role that she she has in a serious way, and she does it to the best of her ability, and, and I appreciate that. Then we have Keith Sutherland. He, of course, is from, like, The Lost Boys. He's, like, the main villain in that. Uh, he's also in Stand By Me. He's the main bully in that. Um, but he also is from, like, 24, uh, where he was on there for, you know, um, a TV show. And he's also the son of Donald Sutherland, you know? So pretty, pretty, uh, you know, he's he's a good little actor. I like Kiefer Sutherland. He's he's fine. Then we have Dan Hedaya, who plays one of the detectives in this film. He, of course, is from um, <laughs> the movies I have. He's from are clueless, obviously, as Mel. Uh, we then have he's in in and out um, with Kevin Klein. He has like a small part in there, but it's just something that you know I remember him from. He's also in Mulholland Drive, funny enough, and then also he's in the movie Dick from uh, nineteen ninety nine as well. He plays. Dixon. And then Brooke Shields, of course, Brooke Shields, she is like a very well-known um, actress who started as a kid. Um, she was in the Blue Lagoon. She was in, uh, she had a television show called Suddenly Susan on uh, NBC, you know, and uh, she has a whole documentary about how her, her crazy life is and how her and her mom never got along and like all this stuff so if you want to check all that out you can then amanda Plummer is in here she plays vanessa's mom who's a sex worker on the streets um she is from pulp fiction um where she plays a also fucked up person um but also uh she's this is so dumb not dumb but like uh, whatever she's also in the movie the disney channel original movie get a clue with Lindsay lohan i i really like that she's in there as a teacher um, and she's not like spouting like uh, racial epithets or anything like that. So that's that's great. Guillermo Diaz is in this movie for like a hot second. He plays Mosquito's boyfriend, I think, which is so funny because Guillermo Diaz is a queer man. Um, he is in this movie, but he's also in Party Girl with Parker Posey playing um, Leo, I believe. And then also he's in Greg Rocky's Nowhere. Um, he's just in a bunch of other things too. I love Guillermo Diaz. I think he's very sexy and uh, <coughs> I think he's awesome. Awesome. He's wonderful. And then our girl, Alana Ubach, who uh, 
has been on, well, you know, I've talked about her on different episodes because I've covered different things she's in, but like the Brady Bunch movie she was in, she's in a movie called Clock Watchers, which I think is on Showtime right now. It has uh, Tony Collette, her, a bunch of different people. It's so good. Parker Posey. Uh, I love that movie. It's great. Uh, but yeah, and she plays Mosquita. She plays uh, that role in this movie. Um, and yeah, Alana Ubach is just an icon and we love her. But we're going to move on to a little bit about um, how this movie came to be, some little fun facts about it, and things of that sort. So before we move into any kind of like plot breakdown or character breakdown of this film, I wanted to go over just a little bit about how this movie came to be, and just a little bit about that. So, you know, I don't have much in terms of production history that I could really find about this, but what I will go over a little bit is just how exactly did this, uh, what is this story about? And so, of course, as I stated earlier, this movie is like an adaptation of of um, the Little Red Riding Hood story, which we've all heard as as kids and just were aware of. It's folklore. Pretty much this story, uh, its origins can be traced back to several pre-17th century European folk tales. The two main versions we have are uh, written by Charles Perrault, which I can get into, and then the Brothers Grimm as well. So... The tale of Little Red Riding Hood is pretty much, it revolves around a girl named Little Red Riding Hood after the red hooded cape that she wears. Uh, this girl walks through the woods to deliver food to her sick grandmother, um, wine and she, wine and cake, depending on what your uh, translation is, um, depending on the culture. Anyway, so then in the Grimm's version, the mother has ordered Little Red Riding Hood to stay strictly on the path um, and not to deviate. A A stalking wolf wants to eat the girl and the food in the basket, and he asks where she is going, and she tells him where she's going. He then suggests that she pick some flowers as a present for her grandmother, which she does. And in the meantime, while she's picking those flowers, he goes to the grandmother's house and gains entry by pretending to be Little Red Riding Hood. He swallows the grandmother whole in some stories. uh, He locks her in the closet and waits for the girl disguised as the grandmother. And when the girl arrives, she notices that her grandmother looks very strange. And she says, what a deep voice you have. The better to greet you with, responds the wolf. Goodness, what big eyes you have. The better to see you with, responds the wolf. And what big hands you have. The better to embrace you with, responds the wolf. And lastly, what a big mouth you have. The better to eat you with, responds the wolf. To which point the wolf jumps out of the bed and eats her as well. And then he falls asleep. And in the Peralt version of this story, uh, the first one to ever be published, the tale ends there. Now, in later or better known versions, the story also continues. So a woodcutter in the French version or a hunter in the Brothers Grimm or traditional ver- German version um, comes to the rescue with an axe and he cuts open the sleeping wolf. Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother appear um, shaken, uh, but unharmed and then they fill the wolf's body with heavy stones the wolf awakens and attempts to flee but the stones cause him to collapse and die and in the Grimm's version the wolf leaves the house and tries to drink out of a well but the stones in his stomach cause him to fall in and drown and then some sanitized versions um are like the grandmother gets locked in the closet um instead of being eaten and some have little red riding hood being saved by the lumberjack as the wolf advances on her rather than um after um, she's eaten, uh, where the woodcutter kills or simply chases the wolf away with the axe. Um, so yeah, those are like the kind of main big things of that. Um, so yeah, this was, uh, the earliest known printed version was, for example, it was, uh, known as Le Petit uh, Chaperon Rouge, um, the little red sh- chaperone, I guess. I don't even know what that means. Um, oh, hood, chaperon. 
I guess. Uh, cute. Anyway, uh, but it probably had its origins in 17th century French folklore. Um, so yeah, this was done uh, back in like near end of the 1600s from Charles Perrault. And so he was kind of the first one to publish this um, anywhere. But then the Brothers Grimm, of course, did as well. And they're German brothers. Um, and as as anybody may know, with Brothers Grimm, that's where a lot of our fairy tales um, that we're familiar with come from. But of course, they have these kind of fucked up endings, uh, you know, because why not? But anyway, so some interpretations. So apart from just the overt warning about talking to strangers, there are definitely many different interpretations of this classic fairy tale, many of them sexual. Uh, So we could talk about like the natural cycles. So for example, seeing like Little Red Riding Hood in terms of solar myths or other occurring, naturally occurring cycles, like her red um, hood could represent the bright sun, which is ultimately swallowed by the terrible night, the wolf, and the variations on which... um, she's cut out of the wolf's belly represents the dawn if you want to get all fucking like crazy about it this tale has also been interpreted as a puberty rite stemming from a prehistoric origin um so the girl leaving home enters a liminal space and by going through the acts of the tale is transformed into an adult woman by the act of coming out of the wolf's stomach you can get into a whole lot of this i mean you also have erotic romantic or rape connotations so like a sexual analysis of the story may also include negative connotations in terms of rape and abduction um so in against our will susan brown miller uh describes the fairy tale as a description of rape um so many revisionist retellings focus on empowerment and depict little red riding hood or the grandmother successfully defending herself against the wolf and also some tellings bear some semblance um of uh, the animal bridegroom story, um, such as Beauty and the Beast with the Frog Prince. Um, But where the heroines of those tales revert the hero to a prince, the tellings of Little Red Riding Hood reveal to the heroine that she had a wild nature like the heroes. Um, And these interpretations refuse to characterize Little Red Riding Hood as a victim. And these are tales of like female empowerment. You can get into the weeds into a lot of it, but yeah, that's a little bit about what Little Red Riding Hood is really about. Um, Now, in terms of talking about freeway in itself we do have to talk a little bit about matthew bright so matthew bright uh he pretty much started um back in like the 80s he wrote and was an actor in like i said forbidden zone um and so he did that um this film includes his two sadomasochistic characters living in a garbage can spit on raped and tortured in an alternate dimensions kingdom and decapitated by satan uh satan if you don't know is played by bright's real life uh childhood best friend a little composer named danny elfman which is how he got him to do this movie i'm sure and again mostly what he's known for is doing freeway and freeway sequel as well and then also doing tiptoes obviously as well and he hasn't directed a film since then um but that's a little bit about him and then, like I said, with Freeway, so Oliver Stone served as one of the um, film's executive producers, um, and he uh, said that this film, or Matthew Bright at least, said um, this film underwent multiple edits during post-production, and he wasn't really able to preserve the original version of this film as Stone was away in Nepal for the time, um, and so he didn't really get to to do that he didn't get to have that he didn't get to have that creative control over it so i'm getting some of this information also from a buzzfeed article back from 2013 from kate um 
Arthur, I believe. And so she talks about, because this is around the time that Reese Witherspoon and her husband, um, they were, uh, well, Reese was like arrested for being drunk and disorderly. Um, and it kind of reminded people of like her performance in Freeway. And so like, uh, they were like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> but um, anyway, very silly um, with that. And you, so yeah, a loose retelling of the, um, but uh, Kate is quoted as saying a loose retelling of the Little Red Riding Hood story. Freeway now has a huge cult following, but as Bright, whom I reached out to over email remembers, um, said that the reception was atrocious initially. The movie wasn't exactly as he wanted it to be, um, Bright recalled. And he was, it was partially edited by some really truly nauseatingly um incompetent producers which ultimately limited its success and i don't think he was talking about oliver stone at the time he wasn't available to really preserve that uh that vision obviously it's and kate uh, is also quoted as saying he she would argue that it still turned out awesome anyway you know what i mean and why not so like also matthew bright said that with reese like he was the she was the first person that he ever directed and it was like a revelation it was like being in a small room watching Jimi hendrix shredding on a guitar and of course the role which is like nothing she'd done before was perfect for her to pull that off he continued that reese was just this uh was a teenage girl with a massively high IQ and a natural sobriety about her that allowed her to make up for any lack of experience created by her extreme youth and then matt Bright, at least at the time of the release of this article, he was living in Mexico. Um, he finished his first book, which takes place in Mexico, about young teenagers working for the drug cartel as killers, uh, while also pursuing skateboard excellence. And he was kind of known as like a little bit of a celebrity because of Freeway, because people really, you know, like it. And um, <laughs> that's kind of fun. But yeah, I mean, there isn't much in terms of like a ton more production history that I can find. Um, this movie also premiered at Sundance in 1996. It did compete uh, for the Grand Jury Prize. And it was released on HBO, but it was also given a um, limited release. Um, and again, it didn't do great financially, but I think it actually did pretty good with, with the critical response. So, you know, some of the quotes that we have. So, like, some critics lauded it for its hard-edged satire and performances. So, Roger Ebert gave this a three and a half out of four stars and stated, like it or hate it or both, you have to admire its skill and the over-the-top virtuosity of Reese Witherspoon and Keith for Sutherland, and it received two thumbs up on Siskel and Ebert at the movies. Um, Joe Baltic from the Sacramento Bee gave it four stars out of four and called it a wild, audacious, drive-in attraction that takes the high from highbrow and the low from lowbrow and shakes them up. Mick LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle, he gave it four out of four as well, and he said it was rude in the way the truth is rude, only funnier. And then uh, Margaret A. McGurk from the Cincinnati Inquirer said, I didn't particularly want to like Freeway, but I couldn't help myself. Wreaths Witherspoon made me. And of course, there's some people who didn't like it, of course, as well. But overall, I think it really seemed to have fans who praised it for its satire, its kind of camp style, and of course, Witherspoon's performance. And really, at the end of it, I mean, like, when it comes down to it, like, this movie is very much a exploitation film, you know, and it kind of revels in that in a way which again I can appreciate as we've talked about some exploitation films on here before but you know it's it's uh yeah it very much is that and it kind of revels in that um which is fine with me I think that this film in particular it's just yeah I, I don't know it, it's it lives in this weird it lives in this weird universe because 
you have someone like Reese Witherspoon who's in this, who's like an A-list star, um, but this was earlier in her career, and it's completely different than what she's ever done before. And so people seeing that, again, everyone's going to be a little different, I guess, but I would say that, you know... Yeah, this this film just lives in this weird little universe, but it's the universe I tend to like, if anything. <laughs> but yeah, it's a little bit about how this movie came to be and how it it you know came to materialize and all that. Uh, but without further ado, though, we're gonna move into a little bit about a, a a breakdown of our plot and our characters and all that kind of stuff. So let's move into that. So we begin our film with our title sequence where it's like these different cartoons, uh, which kind of chronicle the story of Little Red Riding Hood, um, where we have our like, uh, you know, our title sequence, uh, which is fine. Um, and then we start off in um, like an adult literacy class where we meet our um, main character, Vanessa Lutz, played by Reese Witherspoon, of course, and her um, boyfriend, uh, Chopper Wood, who's played by Bo Keen Woodbine. Um, so... Of course, resource Reese Witherspoon, but then uh, Bo Keem is from uh, the movie like Jason's Lyric from the 90s. He was also in Fargo, the television series, um, and he was also in Ray as well. He was in that movie with Jamie Foxx, um, so he's had a nice little career for himself, um, but this is one of his early roles as well. Uh, this is after, actually, he was in Jason's Lyric. But, uh, yeah, so they're in adult literacy class, and Vanessa's trying to read um, The Cat Drinks Milk. Um, but we see that she is illiterate, uh, so, you know, it's kind of hard for her to read. And so she, uh, but she is able to read, and it's nice, and she has to, like, make out with her boyfriend um, as kind of, like, a little reward. Um, but then they, they uh, are told to stop doing that. And so, and of course, this is also also, because um, we're trying to push boundaries in 1990s or whatever, but this is an interracial relationship um, because uh, Chopper is a black man and, of course, Reese Witherspoon is a white woman. And so, ooh, living on the edge, right? But anyway, so, but they, like, drive, they uh, ride away on um, Chopper's bike or whatever um, because uh, they're coming back to Vanessa's place, which is not really a... Uh, a home it's more of a motel that they're staying at um so they're living in los angeles although i believe that she is originally from texas i believe um which is why she has the the southern accent but her mother ramona who was played by amanda Plummer, um this is after she was in pulp fiction of course um is arrested in a prostitution sting so we see that she's trying to get you know to get john's um and she does get one guy and even though she doesn't actually do anything to him. Um, just the solicitation in general um, is what gets her nabbed. And her stepfather, Larry, who's played by Michael T. Weiss, or Michael, yeah, Michael T. Weiss, I believe. Um, yes, that's him. Uh, he was also in the movie Jeffrey uh, from the 90s. Or it's a gay story. Um, but he's been in some other things as well. But Larry, he's taken in on drug and child abuse charges because we see that he's... Uh, a drug addict but he also uh kind of he also seems to be assaulting or has assaulted vanessa before um and so they're both taken away 
by the police because the police are, are called pretty much because of Ramona, but also, you know, they, uh, the police come into the motel, um, room, uh, of the Lutzes and see what's going on with Larry and Vanessa. And so they're both taken away. It's like really fucking weird and crazy, but, uh, but yeah, so then the social worker, Mrs. Sheets, played by Conchetta Farrell, who, rest in peace, she was the, like, maid on Two and a Half Men. She was also in um, Edward Scissorhands and other movies as well, but she was in this one. So she comes to take Vanessa away. Um, and so Vanessa's, like, uh, getting some of her stuff together um, to then go be put into foster care. Um, but Vanessa actually handcuffs... Um, Miss Sheets to the bed, um, and she runs away. And of course, uh, because this is Little Red Riding Hood, uh, Vanessa takes a basket with her, uh, like a little red wicker basket, and she like trots along and steals uh, Mrs. Sheets' car. Um, so then taking, it's actually her, it says her mother's uh, rundown car. I thought it was, uh, Miss Sheets' car. It's a car. Anyway, so she plans to go live with her grandmother in Stockton, California, which I think is northern, so she has to drive north. Um, along the way, she sees her boyfriend, Chopper, um, a local gang member, um, to tell her tell him about her trip. And in this meantime, she gets a gun from him um, because she is on the open road. Um and so also to sell this gun arrive at, uh, upon arriving where she wants to go. Minutes after Vanessa leaves, though, uh, he's killed in a drive-by shooting. Um, and <clears throat> while she's driving on the uh, freeway, um, the car breaks down, leaving her on the side of the road, uh, where she is then picked up by a, a nice passerby named Bob Wolverton, played by Kiefer Sutherland. Um he talks about how he is a counselor at a school for boys with emotional problems. Um, and so he offers her to uh, go as far as LA uh, for this. Um, so, and she decides to trust him. And so over the long drive though, uh, Vanessa begins to start to trust Bob um, and confesses to him like the details of her, like, really painfully dysfunctional life, how her mom is a whore, quote unquote. And like, you know, how she's been in foster care, um, talking about like, you know, the sexual abuse that she, uh, got from Larry, of course, but also her foster parents before, um, when she was put in there because she was put into foster care. And at one point, um, Bob shows a, a photo or no, Vanessa shows Bob a photo of, um, she keeps in her wallet of her biological father <laughs> And it's actually, like, Richard Speck, um, who was a, a murderer who died. But, uh, you know, uh, she doesn't know that, obviously. But, uh, yeah, no, that, that all checks out. <laughs> anyway, so they stop off to get food at, like, a, uh, a diner or something. And, of course, like, Vanessa hasn't really eaten a whole lot. Because, um, again, she's poor, so she hasn't really gotten to eat. Um, so, you know, this is very nice of, of Bob to treat her for that. Um, so they get back on the road after walking around a little bit. And again, this is where she's talking about all the trauma she's experienced. And so then, um, they get back on the road and they're talking, talking, um, 
And then we see that Bob's demeanor starts to change um, because he is asking her about this trauma and trying to help her work through it or whatever. Um, but then he's also getting some sick kind of satisfaction from this. Uh, you see this in the scene where like, he's asking her about like, did you feel like a human urinal uh, when he ejaculated in your mouth? Because, you know, she was talking about all this uh, she was talking about the abuse that she was sustaining from Larry. Um, and then also like talking about, so this is also Bob saying like, you know, did you like it when Larry fucked you? And this is where Vanessa's like, okay, what the fuck? Like you're a gross dude. Right. Um, and so this is when his demeanor changes and he, uh, he doesn't actually reveal it, but by saying it, but you know, you find out that he is actually a serial killer dubbed the I five killer, which we heard about earlier on the television. Um, when Vanessa was, was, um, was watching TV with Larry. And so she, he attacks Vanessa and it's just like, really, it's a, it's a scary scene, I think, because yeah, it's just the, the tone of it. Again, the tone for this, I think is not, I don't know. It's not too all over the place. I think generally it is like a thriller crime movie. You know, it's dark comedy, of course, but I think the tone is pretty consistent throughout um, because it is a dark comedy. It's supposed to be. Um, But anyway, so what ends up happening, though, is that he thinks he has the upper hand on her and all this. And I guess his reasoning for killing is to rid the world of people he thinks of less than. Right. And another interesting thing, I think, is like the fact that Vanessa is kind of like in a weird way, like infantilized or made to be kind of like childish if you will because she's like literate and you know she's kind of behind a little bit um in terms of uh, obviously reading or whatever but like you know she's still a perfectly street wise teenager you know what i mean um and she's nobody's fool if you will i mean she kind of was like a little yeah she's a little gullible to like you know take the ride from the stranger or whatever but also like she even though she got herself into the situation, she still is able to get herself out of it in some way. Um, she turns the tables on him and shoots him several times. Um, and there is like, so the seed is like, it's scary. Like there's definitely some things of like, you know, when he's like yelling at her, calling her a cunt and like all these things. But then when she turns the tables on him, she has the gun to his head. And I love like when she whacks him in the head and she's like, that's for doing this. And that's for cutting off. Cause he cuts her ponytail. She, and she's like, that's for cutting off all my hair. You fucker, you know? And just the way she like hits him with the gun. It's just very funny. Like, I don't know. It's just like this young girl who just has a gun and she's just like taking this guy. Um, but he deserves it. So anyway, but yeah, they go into a, like a clearing or whatever, and this is where she asks Bob, like, you know, do you do you take Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And then he's like, yes, yes, I do, because he's crying, and he's like, she's like, that's good, Bob, that's real good, and he, she just like straight up shoots him and keeps fucking shooting him, and she's just like, fuck yeah. She flees to a local restaurant, the Highway Cafe, I believe. Yeah, I think it's the Highway Cafe. Um, And so she has blood all over her. And um, the 
owners uh, call 911 um, as she leaves the restaurant, which I also think is funny because she's just like, uh, she leaves the restaurant, the police are around, and she's like, hey, officer. And it's just like very funny. But she's arrested. Um, by the two um, detectives, or she's questioned by these two detectives, Mike Breer, um, who is played by by Wolfgang Bodison, um, who he was in A Few Good Men. It was actually his first movie he was ever in. Um, and he was also in this, and I believe he was also in Aquila and the Bee with our girl Kiki Palmer. So that's him. And then you also have uh, Garnett Wallace, who's played by Dan Hedaya, who I said earlier is from Clueless and Dick and all that. Uh, writes like they write her off as like a carjacker, um, even though she insists that Bob tried to kill her and had told her about his crimes. Um, so again, they just think that she was like just some chick who chark, but it wasn't. And you already know that it wasn't, but they're not going to believe her. Um, and so Bob survives the bullet to his like fucking head. Cause you see that he goes to like an ER and everything like that. Um, but the bullet wounds have left him, uh, severely handicapped and partially disfigured facially. Um, Vanessa is put on trial. Um, and so we see that like Bob is portrayed as like an innocent victim, um, with no criminal record. And then Vanessa is shown to have this long string of prior offenses. Um, and so we have all this, um, Of course, the iconic, if you will, scene of this film is like where you have uh, Reese, uh, Vanessa, she is in the courtroom and everything. And then Bob comes in and we find out what's happened to him. Um, And it's just very like, you know. You know, she's a little unhinged, kind of. And so, like, this is how we. This is the the monologue that everyone, you know, quotes, of course, but, you know, uh, Bob enters the courtroom in a wheelchair with his wife, um, Mimi Wolverton, played by Brooke Shields, and you just see Vanessa Lutz saying, holy shit, look who got beat with the ugly stick. Is that you, Bob? I can't believe such a teeny weeny little gun made such a big mess out of someone. You are so ugly, Bob. And hey, I heard you have one of those big poop bags that's like attached to you where the shit comes out. You're just a big old shit bag, ain't you, Bob? You just think of me every time you empty that motherfucking thing, motherfucker. Um, Some of Miss Priss or whatever, but yeah. I mean, oh God, so good. Like, that is just like the ultimate read, you know what I mean? Um, Because yeah, like, because you already know, like, he's a fucking killer, but like, ugh, God, I hate that. And you know, another thing too, as well, and we can get into this with, like, Vanessa and all that. But, like, I don't know. I it, It's this thing of, like, you know, nobody wants to believe this girl of, like, hey, this guy was a killer. He tried to kill me. Um, and nobody seems to fucking believe her until it's too late and she's getting put into prison. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I actually... I think, like, Vanessa is such a great character because she is somebody who they don't look at her as like, you know, we're not, we're not made to hate her, you know, like, I don't think that's the point of the movie. Um, we're really, 
we're supposed to hate Bob, obviously. Um, but we don't, I don't hate Vanessa. And I don't even know if she's like an anti-hero, really. I mean, I think she really is somebody who lives off of her own kind of moral compass and honesty. Yeah, she's in a fucked up situation, but who, you know, other people are too. And so I I think Vanessa's fierce. I, I liked her. I think she's a great character. And, you know, it's 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 just so crazy that like, this is kind of that satire of it all of like, Oh, this person who is like, you know, this person who's made mistakes in their life and has a criminal history, they must always be bad. Right. Um, as opposed to this other person who like is so wonderful and he like works with like these troubled boys and like he, you know, has this beautiful wife and all this stuff, but he's a fucking killer and nobody knows it. So this is definitely, this is definitely commenting on just like, some of the criminal justice system and how we treat poor people and all of this kind of stuff. I think you could definitely read into a lot of it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it, I just think Vanessa's fierce. I like her anyway, but um, yeah, but like, yeah, you see this. And so Vanessa gets shoved off to prison. Also the, uh, the judge lady uh, is the, um, Mrs. Ganesh from Drag Me to Hell, uh, the Romani woman in the bank or whatever that curses Allison Loman. Um, yes, that's her. Uh, and then Bob and his socialite wife, Mimi, I said, like I said, who knows nothing of his crimes are really treated like heroes, right? And so, yeah, she gets put into prison and all that. So, you know, initially she's scared, um, you know, even though she's been arrested before, but I guess she hasn't gone to prison, prison yet. But uh, she makes friends in prison. Um, like with heroin addicted lesbian Rhonda played by our girl, Brittany Murphy. Um, she's only in like two scenes of this, uh, but you have that. And then you have a brutal Hispanic gang leader named Mosquita played by Alana Ubach, who I also found out actually does have some like Hispanic roots in that. So, you know, um, she's pulling from that a little bit. Um, so Vanessa is plotting to escape to her grandmother's house because it's just a little detour. Um, and she fashions a shiv from a toothbrush. She finds out um, she so like she puts she gets put into solitary confinement because she beats the fuck out of Mosquita. Right. Because Mosquita is like, you know, kind of intimidating her a little bit. But Vanessa is not going to go down without a fight. And so anyway, yeah, so uh, she's in solitary. She gets this, like, uh, toothbrush, and she starts making a shiv out of it. And she also, like, puts it into, like, this... I don't know what she puts it in, but she puts it in something, and then I think she puts it in her vagina. Okay, to keep it safe. Uh, fair. And anyway, so... Uh, yeah, this is apparently... She's some learned from her stepdad, I guess, uh, to make a shiv. Uh in the meantime, you see her doing this, but also you see uh, Mrs. Collins, um, who is like the kind of head warden of the women's unit or whatever. And she's making her little report on like what to do with her of like what to do with Vanessa and how she's just not like she's pretty much going to like just be kept in jail for a long time because she's not good for the outside world or whatever. Um. But we do see in this uh, little bit, so I think in the meantime, we also get some information about um, they're re-examining evidence. Uh, but before that, though, uh, there is, uh, so they're transporting the girls 
from one um, security prison to another. Um, and so Vanessa and Mosquita, they end up escaping um, after killing a security guard uh, and they go their separate ways. But we see this whole scene where... Um, you see this whole scene where they stop at a gas station, they use the bathroom, um, and the girls go in the bathroom. There's also two, um, there are two, uh, twins that are also in jail too. Um, these apparently, uh, from what I've gathered, uh, apparently the Daniels, Cynthia and Brittany Daniel from Sweet Valley High, and, you know, Cynthia is, um... I believe Cynthia Daniel is uh, Cole Hauser's wife, but then also Brittany Daniel was in like um, Dawson's Creek. She was in White Chicks. Like, you know, she's had a little career as well. Uh, apparently they were supposed to be the twins or they were offered the role of the twins um, in prison and did not take it. I would have loved if they were in this actually, but whatever. Uh, but yeah, they go to the bathroom or whatever and they, Mrs. Collins comes in and like they hold her with the shiv and, um, you know, Vanessa holds her and ends up Mosquito actually ends up killing her, um, by like uh by like strangling her. And then they kill the other security guard or whatever, and then they're on their way and they drive away. Um but yeah, they go their separate ways and all that. Um we see the scene where they go to like this junkyard or something like that or somewhere, and uh Mosquito is gives like Vanessa a car so she can continue her journey. Uh, this is where we see Guillermo Diaz as Mosquito's boyfriend. Um, and all this kind of stuff and, and whatever. And so then, uh, we have that. They talk a little bit about like, you know, um, maybe some of the lesbianic things they've done in, um, in prison together. Uh, but yeah, you know, but, uh, yeah, but Vanessa's pretty much on her way, you know, and she's going to, take the car and she has a gun she's given a gun um you know to to go on her way and to you know end up at grandma's house um so back to what i was saying about re-examining evidence so they re-examine the evidence um the detectives realize that vanessa was actually telling the truth the whole time so like they go and talk to like a uh classmate of vanessa's who's played by tara subkoff who is from um just being an actress but she is uh, of course, we know her from the wonderful uh, movie of 15 and Pregnant, obviously. Um, how could you not? Um, I believe she was the one from 15 and Pregnant, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but she was in American Pie, like, real quick. She's in The Cell. Am I thinking of another Tara? No, I'm not thinking of another Tara. I know she's in 15 and Pregnant. Uh, that's an amazing movie. Um, fabulous movie. Wait a minute. Let me check this real quick. Very important for the, for the, you know, podcast. Am I thinking of the wrong lady? I must be thinking of the wrong lady. Whatever. Tara Subkoff, she was still in stuff. Um, she was in this movie and she was in as good as it gets. And she was also like the college girl in American Pie and all this stuff, but whatever. Anyway, so yeah, that's Tara Subkoff. And she's also been in like other TV shows and stuff. But anyway, um, yeah, they talked to her and then like, um, I think it's Breer, like, who is a, a black man. He sees that, like, she was with, like, a black man, you know? And, like, oh, even though earlier she was definitely, like, spouting off, like, racial epithets and stuff uh, to this guy because he kind of said something a little out of turn to her um, and whatever. So, you know, but he's must be, like, I don't know. It was, like, a thing of, you know, must have been, like, you know, oh, 
it must have been a thing of like, oh, like, uh, well, I guess she was telling the truth and like, da 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 da, whatever. And this is what her life was. So I'm like, okay, girl. Anyway, so yeah, they find out that she was telling the truth. Um, they go to Bob's house with, with a search warrant. And of course, he's not there, but Mimi is there. And they search Bob's house and they find child porn all over the place and human remains in a storage shed. Um, so at this point, we see that uh, his wife, uh, commit suicide and uh evading the police at his house um he like drives away he goes to like a diner or whatever he goes to a diner and um is like you know trying to pretty much hide out at this point uh he travels to uh, vanessa's grandmother's trailer using the address that um was written on a picture vanessa had shown him um and so he goes to grandmother's house pretty much um, so, uh, posing as a prostitute though, uh, Vanessa steals a car from a, uh, prospective John, um, driving to her grandmother's trailer. But yeah, so she goes and, um, she goes to her grandma's house, you know, as you do. And so then, um, from there, um, she finds Bob in bed wearing her grandmother's, uh, nightgown, um, and nightcap with the, like, covers pulled up to her nose. Um, he then reveals that he killed her, his, uh, her grandma, um, and she sees the dead body on the floor. This is something that's cut out in the, um, like, theatrical cut or whatever, where it is, uh, you, you actually see, like, in the uncut version, you see the grandmother's dead body, um, and that, she's naked and you see like a vase covering her um vagina um so there's that but then anyway you see all that and then uh of course in the meantime so her and bob are fighting around the trailer and then the detectives are on their way and so uh yeah so pretty much like vanessa goes and strangles bob uh breer and wallace they arrive um finding the bodies of both vanessa uh, bob and vanessa's grandmother um and you know it's just been a crazy it's been a crazy time y'all um of what has all happened and so then uh vanessa like comes outside she sits on the little like you know uh patio area little porch that grandma has and Vanessa just sits in a chair in a daze after she's gone through all of this as she asks the detectives if they have a cigarette and then they all just smile and laugh. Um, and then you see the end of the movie is just like Reese Witherspoon just smiling with like smeared mascara and everything like that. And yeah, that's the end of uh, the freeway pretty much. So that's our plot that we have. And then in terms of just like our cast, I guess, as you already heard, I think uh, Vanessa is so fierce. I think like she is somebody who comes from a shitty situation, but I honestly think she has a certain moral compass to her. She knows what is right and wrong. I would say, you know, she knows that she's committed crimes before and, and all that, but I do think she does have some sort of moral compass. Like she does have like, she knows that Bob's a killer. She knows that killers are bad. And so she takes matters into her own hands, you know? And, and, um, I don't know. I think she's fierce. Like, I just think she is, people underestimate her a lot. And so she's not to be underestimated with. And I, you know, it doesn't surprise me that I think there are some, you know, people, women especially, who can look at this movie and be like, you know, wow, that's a different type of fucking 
that's a different type of character that a woman plays. And I love that. And, you know, I think there's that, but then there's also like, um, for Vanessa, especially like there's this kind of queer audience out there for her too. You know, I mean, yeah, she's like a woman behaving badly in a way. And, you know, she's kind of being a bitch, you know, in the movie, but also, I don't know, like she's just othered. Like this whole movie to me is about being othered. And, I think anytime you have that kind of um, theme in a movie, you will have queer people who can look at that and say, wow, I can relate to that because I'm othered in my own life too, you know? So I definitely think like, yeah, Vanessa's such an interesting character and I really, and I also think like, um, you know, Reese Witherspoon just does such a good job at playing this role um, and is, is such a great actress, you know? And, and, um, and she gives some heart to her and, and, you, she makes you care about her, I think. I, I care about Vanessa in this movie and uh, what's going to happen with her. And, and she kind of comes out on top, you know? She's able to kill the villain and, you know, she's able to... We don't know what's going to happen to her next, I guess, but uh, that's okay. It's fine. But anyway, so, yeah, we have that. And then also, I guess, Bob, of course, as well. Um, It's like Bob and Mimi, I think. Like, you know, Bob is obviously just like a fucking... A horrible person obviously he's a killer he's a villain um i think keith for sutherland is is such a good part for this it's he's such a good actor for it because he plays a villain very well um and i just think like this this movie yeah he does a good job at playing this villain and and you know really showing that but also like it is this with bob's character and his wife's character too I mean, it is very much this, like, the the critique in his character and in their characters is this whole idea of, like, oh, you know, how could this guy be a killer if he does all these good things um, and, you know, he doesn't have any criminal history uh, as opposed to Vanessa, who has a long rap sheet of things, whether it be shoplifting or solicitation and all this kind of stuff, Um and it's poking fun at that, you know, it's poking fun at Bob and, and, um, just being like, you know, this, yeah, kind of this like weird hypocrisy that happens, you know, especially with our criminal justice system and, um, you know, who we, you know, kind of publicly exonerate, if you will, or, or whatever, or within the public, within the, you know, public opinion, if you will. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think Bob is just a, he's such a, he's a good villain, if anything. And, and you see him get his comeuppance, you know, and like you see his wife is just kind of this like stupid lady. Honestly, like she's just like this stupid rich woman, um, which I think Brooke Shields, uh, in a way she plays this as like this character of she's not completely aware of what her husband actually does. And at all of this and so of course she ends up taking her own life in the movie but like i think she plays it really well she plays that character as like you know she's not aware of what her husband's doing but you know when it all comes out in the wash if you will it is really fucked up at that point but yeah i mean those are kind of our our big main characters of course uh that we could really talk about if anything but you know i i think that you know, these characters, they're all so distinct and they all have their own real, you know, yeah, they're all so distinct. And I, I really like that where you can tell, 
you know, who is supposed to be who and like, you know, who are you supposed to root for, I guess? Because at the end of the day, this is a fairy tale. You know, it's it's the, the premise is a simple one. It's it's a retelling of Little Red Riding Hood. So for that, it's it's good to have it is good to have like, you know, setting up like what is actually it's it's a simple story to follow. So I like that we keep it simple. Um, we just add some different elements in there you know to make it to make it a little bit different it's a crime drama it's a it's a dark comedy it's it's all of this so i'm i'm like super into that and i think it is a i think to kind of wrap up a little bit about this film i mean i just think it's so i think it's good like i gave it a (laughs) when i first watched it in july on letterbox i did put like what in the fuck did i just watch and i gave it like a three and a little heart and then as i uh just watched it yesterday um to you know prepare for this this um this podcast you know i i also think like you know i gave it like a four at this point because i'm just like i think the more i watch this film the more i kind of like it in a way um Again, I think these, I think I like this story as just a simple story, but it has these elements thrown in that make it different. Um, I don't know of another movie that is like this, really. And um, I haven't seen the sequel or anything. I heard it's like, yeah. But I think this is probably Matthew Bright's kind of shining example of what he could do. Um, And unfortunately, I don't really think he's been able to really match the success of Freeway, but. I think he did such a good job with this and he really kind of, um, I think he did a great job and, and I, I can appreciate this film for what it is and for showing, um, all these different people who are so talented and, and getting a chance to really, uh, have a good time with this role. I, I think is really good. Um, and of course, you know, you can uh, find this. And what's nice about this movie too is that uh, again, it's a cult following. It definitely has that, and it is a quintessential cult film. You know, just looking at the summary of it. But what I also like is that it's very accessible for people, uh, meaning it streams all the time. Like it's always on Tubi a lot of the time, and like like I said, it's on Shutter if you have a Shutter subscription. Um, Vinegar Syndrome actually released this as a 4K Blu-ray um, in November of 2022, which I think you can still find. Um, I kind of want to get it honestly, um, just to kind of have it to my collection. Um, but yeah, I mean, like. I think this film is definitely, I would say, if anything, it is worth a watch if you are like a Reese Witherspoon fan and you want to see her do something completely different. I think that's pretty good. Um, And if you're into this kind of like dark comedy, you got to go into this liking a dark comedy because if you don't, you might not find it to be any sort of good. Uh, but I am a, a connoisseur of dark comedy. I do like that kind of stuff. And so, uh, this was right up my alley, uh, for me at least. And so maybe it'll be the same for you. Who knows? But, uh, but yeah, I would definitely recommend this. Uh, I think it's such a fun movie and I think if you go in with the right mindset, it could be something that is, uh, a fun movie to watch and, and something to enjoy. Um, so yeah, definitely take, uh, take a look and, uh, go out on your journey and go out and journey onto freeway if you will. But yeah, go do it.
As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so via email at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com in case you want to give any movie or episode recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you'd like to just say, hey, I'm open to all of it. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can do so on Instagram and Instagram threads at Cult Cinema Circle. I tend to post what I'll be covering for the next week on there, post stories, things like that. On X, I'm at Cult Cine Circle. On there, I don't really post a whole lot, but if you want to follow the show, it's there for you to follow. And then on Letterboxd, I'm at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On there, I log little movie reviews, I'll log what I'm watching, and then it's also a nice way to kind of see what I might be covering on the show in the future. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much on all of them. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review about the show uh, so we can grow the audience and then just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 1995's Showgirls. A young drifter named Nomi Malone arrives in Las Vegas to become a dancer and soon sets about clawing and pushing her way to become a top showgirl. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, yeah, well, I get claustrophobic sucking strange dick. Now get in there. Take care. Bye.